We're in this uh, second book and now going to be bringing this to a close today. Let's turn to our scripture reading, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May God add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, help us now to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And Lord, will you change us by the power of your spirit through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I told you that Jesus is coming back in three days? Now, let's just suspend belief for a moment. Suppose even that you believe me, that I have really good evidence for that. Assuming you actually believed my prediction, what would you do? Or maybe I should put it, what would you do different? How would you respond? If Jesus was coming back in three days and you really were convinced of that, would you go to work tomorrow? Would you? (laughs) All right. Some of you are on record already. On record already. Um, Would you perhaps start running around trying to make up for all those things you should have made, making a bunch of phone calls to people you should have apologized to and you know you've been deemed but you've been putting it off? Would you run around Like that? Or what else might you do? Well, do you realize that in the history of the church, this scenario has happened? (laughs) 
There have been people telling people, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back within this certain time frame. And people have gone to great, incredible lengths. Some have sold all their possessions and gone off into the mountains waiting for the imminent return of Christ. Perhaps that was what was going on in the book of Thessalonians. Because of some things they had misunderstood, maybe they were thinking, some of them, well, we just need to stop what we're doing and wait for Jesus to take us home. A more recent example would be the Y2K reality 17 years ago. You remember that, don't you, some of you? Now, some of us just were worried about whether our computers were going to work, but some people sold their stuff. They bought a farm in upstate Michigan or wherever in Montana, and they literally took what they had and got and thinking, this is the end of the world. This is surely Christ is coming back, and they were getting away and getting ready to receive Jesus' coming. But we need to remember that my subtitle for this series is Living Today in Light of Tomorrow, not going off the grid in light of tomorrow. See, that's what they did. And Paul is not telling his Thessalonian followers and fellow believers that they should be getting off the grid in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. As Chuck reminded us, he is going to come back. But we don't know when. And we are instead to keep on keeping on. I love Martin Luther's response, Martin Luther of the Reformation era, when someone had told to ask him essentially that question, basically said, Martin, if Jesus was coming back what, next week, what would you do? Martin Luther, without any hesitation, said, I'd go plant an apple tree. Now, what did he mean by that? What was he trying to suggest? He was trying to say, I would do exactly what I've been doing. It's not my business is when my Lord returns. My business is to keep doing my work that God is giving me. Spiritually, physically, in every way. You see, apparently Paul agreed with Brother Martin. Because he taught Whatever God's timetable, which is unknown to us, Christians are to responsibly man or woman their post and occupy till he comes. And so Paul is addressing, apparently, some folks that might have been in that camp of thinking it's time to get ready to check out. And so if Jesus is coming back, why do we need to work? And so they had quit work. And they'd become busybodies as we lead, read in this text. I want to look at four quick points this morning. And obviously, can't go into great detail. It's a good bit of passage here. But I think we can get the essence of this. We're going to look at the concern in this text, the challenge, the command, and the correction. There's your four C's for your points about life, for those of you who like that. Look again at verse 6. Look at there. Turn there again to or follow along with me or listen as I read in verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in, in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, I think the key concern here, the first point is the concern. 
What is Paul concerned to get across? What's the main problem? The main concern here in this verse is revealed by the meaning of that word, how we understand that word idleness that your Bibles translate. The ESV, which our few Bibles are and which I read from, says idleness. A number of other translations do. But some might say something like uh, uh, disorderliness or unruliness or something of that nature. The, The real question is, what does that mean? Is that talking about simply idleness or laziness? Is that what what really is going on here or is it something else? I believe the better translation is not idleness. It, It doesn't go far enough. This is irresponsibility. I'm talking today about gospel responsibility. Abby, we have a slide, a sermon slide, I think, that puts that up there. That uh, we didn't get to, I don't think. There we go. Yeah, gospel responsibility. That's what the subject is. And Paul's concerned about they have failed to understand what the gospel is telling them of how they're to live in light of Jesus coming. And he's saying we're supposed to be staying busy, staying on our tasks, doing what God has called us to do, not setting that aside. And apparently, though, there were some that were being irresponsible. And they were not walking in line with the gospel. Paul uses that same phraseology in another one of his epistles. They were not walking in responsibly. They were walking irresponsibly. And so when Paul says in that verse, in verse 6, again, he says, who, brothers who, are, who is walking in idleness and not in accord, that in accord is in line with, literally. So they're not following what Paul had taught them about not only salvation and about theology, about God and about heaven and about the second coming, but they're not following what he taught them about the godliness of work and a vocation to be workers in God's world and seeing work as missional instead of as something other than that. It's important that we understand Paul is going back to creation here. He's going back to the early chapters of Genesis and he's pulling out the facts and he's building his theology upon what God did in the beginning in creation and then also on what happened in the fall. Remember God said that everything he did, the work that he gave man to do, man, Adam and Eve to do was good. Now, when the fall came, It didn't become work then became bad and evil. It's just encumbered now. It's still God's will for us to do, but it's going to be harder. It's more complicated now in a fallen world. And what Paul is really trying to drive at and has been teaching them, and he said, remember, I told you this stuff. I'm reminding you. I'm saying something I shouldn't be saying again, but I told you that one sense we're God's outpost to be showing a preview of coming tractions of the new world that Jesus is bringing. And when we do our work and when we put ourselves and throw ourselves into that with all our heart and do it unto the Lord, we glorify him and we show the world that Jesus is remaking this world, this broken world. He's healing it bit by bit, moment by moment, effort by effort, work by work. He's using us in his plan to bring about his restorative purpose for creation. That's what work is to do. We're supposed to be building things. Remember the Garden of Eden. It started in a garden, but where does it end in the end of the book of Revelation? In a city, in a garden city. Beautiful, but a city nonetheless. 
And Paul is basically saying, you guys that, are, that have quit work and have decided to go about and you've got nothing to do, nature, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Abhors a vacuum. In other words, when you've got nothing to do, you start filling it with something. You start minding other people's business. And he said, what the problem is, you've not remembered, you're not following in line with what I taught you about God's purpose for work and how that glorifies him. And how it's a calling. The Reformation, they got this. They recaptured that. They rediscovered it. They realized that was true. Paul is saying, whether or not these folks realize it, they are disordering God's plan. They are are taking the order and the purpose of God's plan using work. And when they quit work, they're basically becoming, going against the grain. They're disordering. He's saying that whether they are know it or not, they probably didn't do this intentionally thinking that, but they are having the effect of disrupting God's restorative plan for creation, redemptive plan by their poor work ethic. That's in essence what he's, what he's, what he's challenging here, what he's concerned about. Paul is then saying, listen, don't listen to those folks. Don't buy into what they're selling. Keep your distance. If they're out there doing that, that's not the way I taught you. You stay walking in line with the gospel. You remember the tradition, the teachings that we gave you about good and godly work that honors the Lord. And then the challenge comes in verses 7 through 9. Listen again. Here's the challenge in these verses. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might be not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Well, Paul is challenging them here. He's basically saying, look, look at us. He's challenging them to do two things. Remember his teaching and remember his example. He says, I'm challenging you to remember what I've taught to you. I've told you this stuff before. And you've ignored it, some of you. You need to get back on track. You need to get back in the game. And I also, I provide an example. You know, by the way, Paul was saying, if you read this, understand what he's saying. I have the right to have you guys support me. But because of the circumstances in that fledgling church and because they were under persecution, it was a very difficult time. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take anything from you. I'm going to work alongside so that you will see what God-honoring work looks like. I'm going to show you a proper work ethic so you will know and be able to follow me in that. So Paul is challenging them through his teaching and work. I love this uh, bumper sticker uh, that uh, John MacArthur uh, is. This is this comes from from a, uh, a quote uh, that he he gives, and he talks about uh, refers to it as bumper sticker theology. Have you ever you ever seen bumper sticker theology? <laughs> if you notice, sometimes on bumper stickers there's a, there's some theological statements being made, and he says here's a couple examples. He says one, a bumper sticker. A theological bumper sticker regarding work. This is in all the context of work. It would go like this. I owe, 
I owe, so off to work I go. <laughs> in other words, I, I got bills to pay. Uh, you know, uh, it indicates that work has no other value than, than in a debt-ridden society than paying for pleasure-seeking lifestyle. He said another one reads like this. Work fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. Um, uh, this makes activity occupa- an, uh, an occupation. Yet another states, I'd rather be fishing or I'd rather be playing golf or I'd rather be camping or anything other than working. And then he says, many people today approach work by doing only enough to avoid getting fired. And that's true. A lot of people, that's all they're trying to do, make sure they don't get fired. But the Bible teaches that man's basic calling before God is to work. Genesis 2.15. Work is not a punishment, MacArthur says, but a gift from our creator by means of which we bear his image in doing his will. So that would be good sage advice to remember. And that's what Paul is telling them. He was saying, look, this is not, this is not your punishment Work is God's design, and he, again, in his partnership with you. He could do it another way, but he's going to use your working in this world. Not to get him to love you more. He's already done that in Christ. But so that you can have a part in seeing the new creation that God is making. Redeeming and restoring that which is broken. And we're supposed to be, as the church, we're supposed to be one of the bright spotlights in that. We're supposed to be one of the candles that is putting out light and warmth and heat into the world in the way we work and the way we carry on our callings. You see, interestingly, based on this teaching, there was a third century document or our fourth century, early fourth century document called the Apostolic Constitutions. And it literally took Paul's teaching here and in other places in Scripture, and it basically set forth a theology of work and a vocation and calling. And that was re- rediscovered in the time of the Reformation. And Martin Luther and others uh, made that really clear and said, look, it doesn't matter what your station in life, you have a calling, and your calling is as significant in the eyes of God and what you're doing as, at this as the king's job or as the, as the pastor's job or the priest. You are are being called by God. You need to see it as a vocation, not as a punishment. And so it provided guidance for those who needed help. Uh, The question remains, though, why were some of them, again, why were they not working? And as I said and alluded to earlier, probably because they may have, again, thought, okay, Jesus is coming back. Let's just, why why work? It's all wasted. All that work we're going to do is going to be for nothing. So let's just, let's just sit and wait. But then, like I say, what happened? In that vacuum, they started getting busybody and they started going around. And they started deciding to say, well, you know, we, we kind of, we're not working now and we don't have any food. And, you know, so, so hey, hey uh, uh, Sean, Brother Sean, uh, you, you have me over to dinner tonight, won't you? Uh, you'll help me out. And, and by the way, uh, uh, Michael, I need some, uh, uh, and Tiffany, I, I need some new, new cl- uh, clothes from, from my baby. Y'all, y'all would be willing to buy that for me, wouldn't you? See, that was what was beginning to happen. They, they were just not only not working, but they were beginning to drain the resources of the church. And that was not a good example for the church, nor was it a good example. Even the pagans knew that was not cool. Now, we're not talking about those who really cannot. We're not talking about, but these were, this was a willful choice on the part 
of these that Paul is talking about, is concerned about. And he's steering and, 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 and telling the Thessalonians to be careful around them and the way they relate to them. You see, here's the point. Our work is given to us by God but it's, and for his purposes ultimately. It's not given just so that we can have everything that we want. We need to remember at the heart of what this whole teaching that Paul is giving here and that he gives elsewhere in the rest of the New Testament. We need to remember at the heart of this command is that work is not a notion for providing for yourself only. It is there so you will be able to provide for yourself. That's the Protestant work ethic. And that's right. You should be able to provide for yourself. And you may even prosper in that if God so blesses you. And if so, praise God. But it is also what is given to you is so that it will not all be consumed on you or by you. God's cause and kingdom must be remembered and the need of others must be remembered. Whatever we do and gain from our work, it has the first purpose of meeting our needs so that we don't become a burden to others. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on and calls us to be generous toward God and toward others and meeting true and real need. Now, we don't want to end up subsidizing something that is not right or that is, that is false, but we should be willing to recognize that our income, what we gain from our work, is not ours. Ultimately, all things belong to him, and he tells us that we need to be generous with it. Here, Paul is dealing with a particular problem of where there are people depending and abusing the system, as it were. Now, the correction is what Paul gives here in the verses 11 through 15, the correction, the final aspect. What are we to do if someone in the church like those in Thessalonica continues to be irresponsible and disorderly? Look at verses 14 and 15. If they continue, if this were to happen or is happening, is anyone, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, typically, churches tend to, on this subject, well, this is what we call church discipline. On that subject, when it comes to ever correcting anyone or trying to get someone back on base or in line with where they should be responsibly, when it comes to that subject, churches typically tend to go to one or two very wrong approaches. They ignore it or they floor it. They either say, well, you know, oh, I know it's a problem over there and I know it's, it's really beginning to cause dissension and disunity in the church, but if we just look the other way and, and close our eyes and, you know, it, it'll go away. We'll just wake up one day and it'll be all gone. <laughs> Doesn't usually work that way. And you know that. And the people who do it know that. But they still hope against hope. The other, other response is they come down with a hammer. Come down too hard, overly overdone, over the top. They take a, what could have been dealt with with a fly swatter and they take a sledgehammer to it to 
kill the fly. Both of those extremes. But it appears here that Paul is calling for a form of discipline. When there is, and here's the key, persistent behavior that disrupts or disorders the peace of the church. That's what ultimately these Thessalonians were that were in this busybody group. They weren't working and becoming busybodies. They were disrupting the peace and purity of the church. However, there are variants in the verb that Paul uses in verse 14, the word he talks about there, about the what sometimes would look like uh, a disassociation. It's interesting, in Corinthians, it's like, yeah, disassociate, kick him out. This one, it would basically be cautioning about the intimacy and how much you are getting from this person. It seems to be not as, as strong. The word has varying ways that it's used in two different places. And we see Paul, one place it's much more severe and the other place it seems to be here. And the reason we know that it's the more milder version is verse 15. It says, look, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the same stuff of Galatians 6, 1. Where Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted with humility. But the conversation needs to occur, needs to be had in order to bring that person back. It's anticipating, winning them back. It's restorative, this kind of discipline when it becomes necessary. Now, if you're wondering here as we end today, if you're wondering what's the last three verses, verses 16 through 18. Um, those are pretty pretty common, pretty standard things. And they include Paul's usual suspects of supplication, authentication, and benediction. He gives a benediction at the end. He authenticates it's really him. But then he does a supplication, a prayer request. He's asking for something. And you're thinking, what's that got to do? It's just, it's just stuck out there all by itself? No, I don't think it is. Don't miss that he is praying for. Look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. Paul's given them instructions. He's told them what they need to do about the problem. He's saying you need to get this fixed, folks. But he knows unless God blesses them and makes it happen, it's going to be in vain. Don't miss that he is praying for the very thing that he has called them to pursue. What is that? Peace. Peace and purity in the church. And yet one does not negate the other. We pray and then we don't need to work. No. Or we work really hard and do it for God. No. We work and we pray. And we pray for our work and we work for our prayers to come in line with the prayers. What we are asking God to do, what Paul is saying, Lord, let this church be at peace. Let it know shalom. And then he turns to the people and says, now you've got a responsible part, folks. Don't do this. If you're not doing that, hey, stay away from those folks that are taught. That's not the right. Get back in line. You see, it's very connected. But that's the outcome for which Paul prays and he encourages us 
to pursue that peace, even if it's sometimes uncomfortable. May God grant it and help us to work for it and pray for it. Amen.